0: Having not preached from this pulpit for a month now, I want to reintroduce myself to you (laughs) and having a month full of meditation on the book of Romans, I would like to explode upon you this morning, Romans chapter 5. I'll dispense with the reading of verses 1 to 11 because of our Scripture reading. And that is a great introduction for us as we enter a new section of the book of Romans this morning. We know that this is a new section of this great letter of Paul because even the pronouns change in this section to plural pronouns like we. Paul is embarking upon a specific description of the great implications of the justification of believers. And that's why I've entitled this message and the ones that will follow from this text, Romans 5 verses 1 to 11, Great Implications of Our Justification. Great Implications of our justification. And beginning with Romans 5, we begin a study of a new dimension of understanding regarding the great salvation that we have been granted in Christ. Indeed, we have been justified by faith alone, by virtue of our union in Jesus, as Paul has just previously taught us. And here in Romans 5 and running through chapter 8, we are now going to be given instruction about these great implications of our justification. Do you remember the outline we have been following? It's been quite a bit of time, and so I need to remind us. Of course, in Romans 1, verses 1 to 17, we were given an introduction to this great letter. And from Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, we were shown the righteous judgment of a holy God against sin. And we just heard that so beautifully and ably sung to us. Further, the next great outline covered chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 4, verse 25, or the end of the chapter as we were taught the great doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Finishing up there in chapter 4, looking at the great example of our father Abraham, who was shown to us to be justified by faith apart from works of any kind. And now we move into a next great section of Romans which comes to us in Romans 5 all the way through chapter 8, and as I said, shows us great implications of our justification. And this morning, I want us to be introduced to the first paragraph of this new section, which covers, of course, verses 1 to 11. And I want to do that by focusing in on verses 1 and 2 of Romans 5 this morning. As an outline of verses 1 and 2, I suggest that we can immediately and easily discern three great implications of our justification. Namely, one, we have been given peace with God. Two, we have been given participation within the sphere of grace. Participation within the sphere of grace. And thirdly, we've been given the praiseworthy hope of future glory. Easily remembered, we've been given peace with God, we've been given participation within the sphere of grace, and we've been given praiseworthy hope of future glory three great, implicative realities of our justification. Peace, grace, and hope. So simple, and yet oh so profound. Let's focus on each one of these great truths as we sit under the instruction of the Word of God this morning. Let's talk about the first one. We've been given peace with God. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. first great implication about our justification, according to Paul, notice, is not the peace of God, but rather peace with God. That's an important distinction. Of course, you can't have peace with God without the peace of God, at least in the balance of the Christian life. But this is not talking here about a particular subjective kind of peace, which is obviously, of course, very important to the believer. But here, this is not what Paul is specifically referring to. Here, he's referring to peace with God, a more objective experience, and, I should say, a more collective one. This is a corporate dynamic here. This is talking about the body of Christ. This is talking about uh, the church in Rome made up of true believers. This is talking about the Bible church of Little Rock made up of genuine believers. This is what Paul has in mind here. It's referring to the fact that before our conversion to Christ, we are in a conflicted relationship with God. A conflicted relationship with God. He with us. And we with Him. Isn't that exactly what Paul had been saying in Romans 1, verses 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20? The wrath of God abides on all who are depraved, who are sinners, judged, and condemned as such. God has righteous indignation on all who are an affront to His holiness, And we are justly condemned by God because of our sin in Adam, which, by the way, Paul will fully discuss in verses 12 to 21 of this great chapter. And we are also condemned because of our own volitional choices that we make each and every day against this holy God. So we are in a conflicted relationship with God the very moment we come out of the womb. There is hostility, there is anger, there is wrath from God toward us because we are estranged with, uh, from Him, even from the womb, as the Bible says. But here, Paul says there is a great implication, great news about the good news. Back up to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and I'll tell you what it is. Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it What is it? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the confliction we are talking about. That's the hostility. We are sinners. We fall far short of the glory of God. We are estranged from Him. We are depraved in our natures. We cannot please God. That's our dilemma. That's our curse. That's the devastation of our lives. But notice what is said in verse 24. And even though we're in that conflicted, estranged relationship with God, when Christ comes to us, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Oh, what good news. What grand and glorious news. That even though we're estranged from God, we're alienated from God, we're hostile to God, and He is hostile to us, His wrath abides on us. Jesus Christ comes to us by God putting Him forward, God taking the initiative, God reaching down to us in the person of Christ and bringing us to a place not of hostility, but now of peace. That's what Paul intends to say right here at the beginning of chapter 5. Oh, what great news. Therefore... Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, which points back to the immediately preceding section and Paul's teaching on justification, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Oh, those words are so sweet. What a tremendous implication of our justification. As a result of what God has done for us in imputing Jesus Christ's righteousness to us and in the imputing of our sins to Christ, we have peace with God. You say, I didn't know I was at war with God in the first place. You were, even if you didn't realize it. A lot of people out there that say, I'm not at war with God. I have no issue with God. I just don't want Him in my life. That's a declaration of war. That's a declaration of all-out hostility. Because God didn't create us just for us to say, thank you, now I'll, I'll take over. He needs no co-pilots. And He certainly doesn't need us to say, you move over, in fact, you move out, I'll take over. That's hostility. You and I are in a conflicted relationship with God if we don't know Christ. Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. Go back to Romans 1.18. That's the very point of the Apostle Paul as he has been teaching us about who we are outside of Christ. Romans 1.18. This is the hostility. This is the anger. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a fact, and the sooner someone comes to the realization of that fact, the more they will humbly acknowledge the answer. This is exactly what the apostle Paul, uh, excuse me, the apostle John says in John chapter three. Listen to it, verse eighteen: Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're condemned already. You're already in the state of condemnation. It's already happening. It's not just going to happen the moment you die. That's the culmination of it. That's the That's the entry point of eternity, and it begins now. Hostility. God has a wrathful, condemning response to His creatures who don't honor Him, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, who do not believe. And look, even in our own text of Romans 5, 1-11, we see this. Look at verse 10. Notice, "...for if while we were enemies..." Enemies. Enemies, yes. The Bible teaches that God has an estranged, conflicted relationship with unredeemed humanity. You say, well, maybe that's just Paul. Well, I quoted John. And it's not, not just John. You say, well, would one of the psalmists, one of these sweet singers of Israel, say something like this? Like this? Yes, Psalm 5.5 says, God hates all who do iniquity. He hates all who do iniquity. Psalm 7.11 says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Why? Why, Why would God have indignation every day? Because we've flouted His law. We've, we've done everything we can To say no to His great offer of salvation. We're in a conflicted relationship. We don't listen. We don't want to listen. We don't obey because we don't want to obey. And because of that, unredeemed humanity has within its scope the very judgment, the bullseye of God's guns of judgment on them every day. And that is why He has indignation every day. Nahum Chapter 1, verses 2 and 6 say this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps His wrath for His enemies. Isn't that interesting? He keeps His wrath for His enemies. He keeps storing it up. Paul even says that in Romans 2. He's storing up wrath against the day of wrath. Against those who are the recipients of His wrath. His wrath, Nahum says, is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. Oh yes, wherever you look in the Bible, it unmistakably asserts that God is angry with the wicked. He will not allow wickedness to go unpunished whatsoever, not even the least sin. And, of course, from man's side of the ledger, Paul teaches us in that devastating list. Look at it with me in Romans chapter 3. Lest anyone say, well, is it all just on God's side of the equation? God's anger? God's wrath? No. Look at what our response is to God. Romans 3.10, it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. I'd say that's fairly inclusive. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And notice this, especially in light of the context of our own looking and studying Romans 5.1 about the peace of God and the way of peace they have not known. Very clear. There's no peace Why? Verse 18, because there's no fear of God before their eyes. Unredeemed humanity has no fear of God before their eyes. That's man's side of the ledger. Wow. It's not a pretty picture, is it? Here we are in a soul... Destroying relationship with God with a complete absence of peace. And here's the devastating part about it. Unbelievers could care less. Unbelievers could care less about what I just said. That there's no spiritual antennae. There's no receptivity. The radio frequency is not coming through. The eyes are blind, the ears are deaf, it's, it's, it's not anything they care about. They couldn't care less about it. They couldn't care less about what James says in James 4 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy. An enemy of God. You see, you're, you're a friend of the world, you're a worldly person, that's the balance of your life, that's the, that's the genuine makeup of your life, that's the pattern of your life, then you make yourself an enemy of God. You're at enmity with God if you're a worldly person. And the most amazingly devastating reality about this condition of man is that he's blind to it all. He's just blind. And this is why, beloved, if you're sitting here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are genuinely justified by faith in Christ, you say to yourself, that, that's what makes grace that much more amazing. Amazing grace. Because we were not searching for it. We were not asking for it. Read again with me, Romans 3, 24 and 25. We are justified by His grace as a gift. A gift. It's not something you earn a gift. It's not something you deserve a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. As I said, whom God put forward. God did it. He displayed Christ He put him out there. He did what needed to be done. And the offer has been initiated, originated by God. We were just going our merry way. We thought we had it all wired. We thought we were in control. And the devastating reality is we were going headlong Into peril, and we didn't even know it. Or what's worse, we didn't even care. Now you know why. When Paul bounces into this new section and says, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What an implication! From hostility and enmity and estrangement, and anger, and wrath, and volatility. Peace. Peace. You heard some of those folks in yesteryear, sometimes even in some of these old westerns, just before somebody's six-shooter is going to mow someone down, have you made peace with your God, with your Maker? That's obviously where this comes from peace with God. That's what is available from the offer of Jesus Christ to a life. And those who grab that by God's grace as a gift, they realize what they've been delivered from, from hostility and anger, the very righteous anger of a holy God who grants us by a gift of His grace through putting forward Jesus Christ as an atonement for our sins, peace. Oh, if you're here this morning and, and you have that genuine relationship with God, you have been justified by faith, you're rejoicing in your heart because you know I was one of those in which hostility was abiding and now I have peace. I have peace with God. I can know for certain that if I were to die this very moment, God would usher me into his eternal kingdom and welcome me with peaceful, open, loving arms. Oh, what a joy. What a great implication of our justification. No more anger. No more death. No more hell. No more hostility. No more judgment. Instead, we have peace with God. Didn't we read it this morning? Look at Romans 5.8. But God shows, He demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, still in that position of great hostility, Christ dies for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, by the shedding of His blood, by the sacrificial death of God's Son, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. You see, this is the only way you can be saved from the wrath, the anger, the the fury, the hostility of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. That's that's why there's a therefore in chapter 5, verse 1, because of what the end of chapter 4 says. But the words, verse 23, it was counted to Him, were not written for His sake alone, but for us, for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God. Oh, how you... Need to ask this question and answer it in your own heart. Do you have peace with God? Do you have peace with God? Do you know it? Have you been the experiencer of the absence of His holy hostility? Do you know of His great love? Do you know of this amazing grace of which I speak? If you've not embraced, Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you know nothing of this peace. And that may be the very reason why you came. You're wanting to know peace. Peace in relationships. Peace from certain harsh experiences and circumstances and situations. I can give you far more than that. I can give you far more than just the peace of certain relationships or circumstances, I offer you peace with God. With God. The God who created you, the God of the universe, is offering you peace. You say, how do I receive it? By faith. By faith in Christ. That's why Paul says, he was delivered up for our trespasses, trespasses, sins, Wickedness, evil, the very depravity that's explained earlier in these chapters. And He was raised for our justification. His resurrection is for our being in the right with God. That's what He's offered to you. You say, no. No, I don't want that. I'll continue to try to make it on my own. Well, if that's true, then you are presently in a settled condition of wrath and anger from a holy, righteous God who will pour out His fury upon you for which there is no escape. Wouldn't you rather acknowledge the humbling truth that your sin is what separates you from your Creator, from your birth, you've been God's enemy. Just acknowledge it. Take the pride of your heart and see it for what it is. And take the only exit from divine wrath by believing in God's sole provision of rescue Jesus Christ's propitiation, his death on the cross, which satisfies God's justice against sin. Instead of being God's enemy, he could be yours or better yet miracle of miracles you can be His friend. What a statement. What a thought. That you could actually be the friend of God. All of this and so much more is what it truly means to have peace with God. Number two. Number two. We've been given participation within the sphere of grace look at the first part of verse 2 of Romans 5 through him through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace and I love this part in which we stand oh what a second great implication of our justification It is that we as believers have been given actual participation in the sphere of God's dominion of grace. Now, we need to unpack this phrase, because if we're not careful, we could misunderstand the intent of Paul's words here. First of all, whatever Paul means here by the phrase, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, he nevertheless states that it has been given to us through Him, through Christ. Notice a repeat of what he's just said in the first verse. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lest anybody misunderstand, he repeats it, through Him. Through Him. So careful is Paul to put the initiation, to put the instrumentation where it belongs. Through Christ, not us. Not our own good works, not our own deeds, not our own prayers, not our own giving, not our own philanthropy, not anything like that through Him, through Him. And whatever the phrase means that comes after it, we've gained or obtained access by faith. We're reminded yet again that if it's anything we receive from God by way of any kind of great implication of our justification, it is through Jesus Christ that we receive any of those things. And having affirmed that, Paul says, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What exactly does he mean by that phrase? It's not particularly easy. It's a little bit debated. You would normally assume that Paul would be simply referring to our initial introduction into the Christian life because he says, we have access and access, or in some of your Bibles it may even be translated as an introduction by faith, which implies, sort of, that this is talking about the initial point of our salvation. Like the New American Standard Bible has it translated, an introduction by faith. It sounds by that translation, and even by translating it access, for that matter, here in the ESV, that Paul is only referring to the initial aspects of our salvation, but I think he's referring to so much more. When he says here, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, each constituent element of this phrase is very important, including, by the way, the verb tense, past perfect, which is talking in the Greek text about a signaling of our obtaining access as having occurred, having already occurred. And therefore, we stand... In the realm or the dominion or the sphere of God's grace continually. In other words, it's not so much emphasizing our introduction or our initial access by faith into grace as much as it is emphasizing the presence of believers as having been made participants in the whole realm. The whole sphere of grace, that which begins the process, that which is in the middle of the process, and that which concludes the process, and in fact, even beyond that, even beyond this life, into eternity. That's what he's really, really driving at. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and through Him. We have also obtained as a fact with continuing realities, access by faith into this sphere of grace, this realm, this dominion, this new world of grace in which we stand. This is a standing. It's not just an introduction. It's an introduction that leads to a current, present, ongoing reality of God's wonderful grace. It's a whole new world. And that's the way it is for so many people. That's the way it was for me, and that's the way it is for so many of you. Those of you who didn't come to Christ as a young person, but you came to Christ as a as a later person, maybe as a later teen, or as a later young man or woman, or maybe even as an older person, you lived so many years outside of Christ. And when you live in Christ, you begin to say to yourself, there's a whole new world. My thinking is different. My attitudes are different. My relationships are different. My serving is different. It's all new. It's it's living in the sphere of grace. You know, my wife and I had an illustrative sense of this when we were on our first ever ocean cruise together this past summer. First of all, we could never afford to go on something like this ourselves. It was something... As I think I may have mentioned to you that I received a call from someone who said, would you be interested in doing this, going on this cruise to Alaska? And I said, I'll pray about it as my wife packs. And it would have been far beyond our ability to pay for something like that. We couldn't have done it. It would have been beyond our own resources for sure. Secondly, while on this cruise and not knowing how all of the people around us were perceiving things, and some of them, of course, might have been wily veterans, some of them like ourselves were very new and were drinking in every aspect of it, looking at it as new and fresh and exciting. Beth and I had a definite sense that we didn't belong on that ship. We sort of looked at each other and said, what are we doing here? It was simply the sense that as we surveyed the whole panorama of the experience, we knew and we were humbled even to be a part of it because we could readily acknowledge that the whole realm, the whole sequence, the whole experience of the cruise was way beyond what we could have ever planned or executed on our own. And you know, as soon as we were in contact with the people who were hosting us, they were the epitomes of gracious hosts. I don't know, maybe you've had those kinds of experiences where people just sort of run up to you and say, can I take your bag, sir? I don't have those experiences often. Can we help you? Is there anything you need? Would you, would you like a drink? Would you like something to eat? Boy, they just constantly would do anything. Take your bags, shine your shoes, feed your tummy, and feed and feed and feed and feed. Lavish dinners, never-ending service, never-ending care, never-ending help. And from the moment we were on board, we were in a state of gracious service by the entire crew, the group that we were with, the ports of call, the entire realm of the experience. And as soon as we would turn around, we were being offered something that we didn't have before. They would lavish everything upon us at every turn. And you know what? I thought about that when I was studying this passage. I thought about that experience, and I thought, this is what Paul's talking about. You go on an experience like that, and you just say, this is a whole new world. I'm in a different realm. This is a a state of grace. It was like that ship in the Pacific Ocean that we were on. As we looked out from the ship, when we were traveling on the open ocean, there was nothing but a vast... Sphere of water all around us. You couldn't see anything but water. Three hundred and sixty degrees, it was just made your head spin. You'd look around one eighty and look around one eighty, you look around one eighty, and it's just water all around, it's just vast. And if we fell overboard which you know you always do when you're standing on those rails. Every single person, me included, you look at that rail and you look at the water and you look at everything and you say, "Boy, what would happen if I fell in? So then you move away from the rail. And I thought about that too and I thought, wait a minute. If I were to move from this state of grace and fell in, it would be certain death. And it caused me to ask myself the question, well, wait a minute. A person who's truly in a state of grace will not fall in. And I thought, yes, but boy, there's the $64,000 question. Am I in a state of grace? Am I in? Do I have peace with God? You know, if you fell over and you didn't know the answer to that question... There'd be a couple of things that might happen to you. One, you could drown immediately. Or you could be eaten by sharks. Or if left to your own devices, you might survive for just a time, but you would otherwise be lost at sea without ever any hope of rescue by the ship. It's gone. You're not seen, perceived. You're forever lost. But if you're within that ship's safety, you would be treated like a king or a queen. And even on that first day when we started out and we hit those rough, open waters, we were sickened by the sea on the first day out. But we were ultimately protected by both the sturdy ship itself and also our fellow participants who cared for us. And told us how to endure our sickness. It was truly a phenomenal experience. It was a a grand illustration for Beth and for me of God's own mercy ship of grace. In fact, I think I'm going to call it, because of this illustration, the good ship grace. The good ship grace. Grace. Paul is talking here about boarding the good ship grace by grace because we're so humbled and know we don't deserve to be there in the first place. And once we're on the good ship of grace, we're then treated to so many unimaginable graces as we continue on the good ship, grace, being loved and cared for and fed and clothed and protected and guided, even when the waters of life are treacherous and dangerous. Why are you safe? Because you're in the ship of grace. And when, even at a point, and I remember this vividly, looking out my window, By that time I'd moved from the rail to the window, very strategically, and I saw another smaller boat pulling aside, Coast Guard. And I asked somebody what happened and they said somebody became seriously ill on our journey and certainly would have died without critical care that they desperately needed and so another boat of mercy Came up to that big, huge ocean vessel and ultimately took them home. And I thought, you know, that's exactly the way it is with our loving Heavenly Father, who knows what we need and at the right time, at the precisely right time, when we need it, when we're ill. Even to the point of going home or the need to, he safely dispatches his boat of mercy to bring us to the end of the journey. He provides his matchless grace to take us up from the grace of this life into the absolutely perfect grace of the next. What a vivid illustration. And Paul says that through Jesus Christ, believers, those justified by a gift of God's grace, are in a state of grace, a realm of grace. Let me ask you, are you yourself in this state of grace? If you were standing on the bow or the stern of the ship, whatever ship you're on, and you fell overboard... Would that ship have been the state of grace? Would you have been protected from the shark-infested waters and the rough oceans of life? It's too late if you fall over. It's too late then. And Paul says, when you realize that you're overwhelmed with your sin... And you see with your spiritual eyes of faith that God loves, He loves, He delights to display His mercy to the undeserving, especially you, especially me. And you gain the confidence that when you place your complete trust in the good ship of grace, the grace of God, you'll ultimately be safe from the harm of the treacherous waters of divine judgment. You'll be delivered from the certainty of being forever lost out upon the sea of eternity. Do you have that grace? Are you in the state of grace? Thirdly, he says we've also been given the praiseworthy hope of future glory. Look at the latter part of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope... Of the glory of God. Now, this is so logical. I mean, after we've just talked about what we've talked about, how could anyone who's received the grace of forgiveness not be exuberantly blissful? That's exactly what the word for rejoice really means. You see that word rejoice there? And we rejoice, could even be translated boast, or even glory in. It's what the word exult, not exalt exult. That's what that means. It means to praise God. To exult means to praise God for something. It means that whatever is the object of that praise is evidently praiseworthy to that person. That's why we call it the worthy hope. I mean, look at what he says. We exult in hope of the glory of God. I mean, after all the hostility and wrath and anger has been assuaged and your peace has been made with God and where you are likewise ushered into the very realm or sphere of God's graceful ship being made into the very image of Jesus Christ, you wouldn't rejoice in hope. It's the very essence of hope, my friends. This is not a hope for hope. This is the rock-solid, guilt-edged, guarantee, hope, trust, confidence, a confident expectation, we might say, that believers can take God at His very word. You know, I heard something interesting just this week. Someone told me regarding these elections that they saw an interview with George Stephanopoulos who was, of course, a former advisor to President Bill Clinton. And he apparently was saying something along the lines, because obviously he's a Democrat favoritist, even though he had, of course, some of his own spats, I guess, with President Clinton. He nevertheless said something negatively about the fact that now that President George Bush has been reelected. He ought to really follow through on the promises of both his previous and no doubt some of the things he's going to promise in this next administration. That he ought to really be a man of his word, that he ought to be a man of integrity, that he ought to follow through on the promises that have been made. And apparently whoever the, the reporter was who was talking with him, asked him the question, Now let me ask you, in the 1992 election, and in President Clinton's own reelection bid, of course, which was successful, did his administration, did you working in that administration follow all of the promises that he made? Which I thought was an excellent question. And I was very interested to see what kind of answer there would be. And this is what he said. And this is our postmodern culture to the max. He said this. We followed through on every single promise we intended to follow through on. Now, is that postmodern or what? I thought to myself, who can trust someone like that? Who can have any confident expectation that the promises will be delivered? We can't. Please, with as much admiration as I might have for our own dear, currently serving president, don't put your trust in George W. Bush. Please don't do that. He is a mere man. Put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. The one who, as Psalm 75 says, with a righteous God as judge, exalts one and puts down another. Put your trust only in Christ. This is our praiseworthy hope in God. And notice what else Paul says here. Our justification by faith alone in Christ grants us this great implication. We rejoice, we exult in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? Future glory. That's what it means. Our future glorification. I place my expectation in the certainty of being one day glorified by God. Folks, this is the hope of heaven. This is the hope of eternity. This is the hope of our full and complete confidence in Jesus Christ alone for our future. What an incredible implication of our justification. No one else except true Christians can have that sure hope. Peace, grace, and hope. Three simple words. Three great implications for the justified in God's sight. Let's pray together. Father, I ask this people, because I am your representative, your ambassador, I plead with you, Father, to bring any who are within the sound of my voice to a settled and clear position on where they stand with you. And Father, I appeal to you, not only to them, but ultimately to you, because I know it is your initiating grace that opens up blind eyes and unplugs deaf ears, Lord, I pray that You would do it. Lord, I pray that You would bring anyone here who has already fallen over into the sea of judgment, where the wrath of God abides already on the condemned, I pray, Lord, that You would fish them out. Bring them to a place of the good ship of grace. And Lord, for those who have been on the good ship of grace for a long time, may may they be encouraged about the implications of their justification, that they have peace and that they have grace and that they have hope. And Lord, even when those rough waters Cause us to be spiritually seasick. And even if it were to bring us to a place of despairing, even of life itself. Bring us the boat of mercy. And carry us there to our eternal home. By your will and good pleasure, we pray these things. Amen.